There are, um, there are times when you and I visit the zoo, and the zoo is a wonderful place. We enjoy that. And we see these animals and their, their beauty. We see them in a safe area. But we all know this, that they haven't their full potential. They're limited. They're restricted. They're in cages. And so we don't see them in everything that God intended them to be. You and I, in a similar way, we are caged. We won't be able to have our freedom and to be able to fully experience everything that was planned for us until we get out of this life and into heaven because right now we're caged by sin. We struggle with that. We have difficulties with that. But one day we're going to get into heaven. And this morning we talked at length from John 14 as well as other passages. Jesus gave us a little glimpse of what heaven is like, which you and I, that's important for us. For instance, if you are going to go on vacation, if you're going to go and see a place, you want to find out, okay, what about the accommodations? What about the different sites there? What can I do? What can't we do? Do they have this amenity? Do they have that amenity? And that's of interest to us. We, we're concerned about those things where we would go visit or if we're going to buy a house. I don't know, most of you would probably do the same thing. You would probably say, before I buy the house, I want to have details. What's it going to be like? What's the neighborhood like? What school is available for my kids? What's the taxes? And so this information Christ gave us is important. It helps us. It helps us to plan. It helps us to get excited. The big question we want to talk about this evening is what will we be like? I'm not going to give you all the information uh, information this evening, but we're going to touch on some of this, and we're going to give you some information, and we're going to base it on some passages that give us a glimpse into what about those who have already died? What about those who are in heaven? Now, one of the texts that we've referred to a lot in the last two weeks is Luke 16, a true story where Jesus is talking about Lazarus and the rich man, and it gives us a little bit of information about what heaven was like, and that was that Sheol of the Old Testament era, and what is hell like, the same hell that is functioning yet today. And we get an idea, what about the people? What about the spirits there? Another text that gives us more information is Revelation 6. In Revelation 6, the setting of this text is its future to us. It is describing what's going to be like for some people who entered into the tribulation period that the Bible talks about, those last seven years, worst time in all of human history, where it talks about how some people get born again in that time period, and many of those who do, they will be martyred. They will die because of the Antichrist and his opposition to the gospel. And then it reveals to us that some of those people have died, and it pictures what are they like in heaven. And so the information that we're going to read in a minute talks about saints in the future era of the tribulation. They are in heaven, okay, as we know heaven. It is before the kingdom of, uh, of God is set up on earth, so it's the heaven that we know of today. They are portrayed in spirit form, okay, being in heaven, which is giving us information about what about our loved ones who are dying, who have died, who are in heaven right now, what are they like in their spirit form? So we get a little bit of this information because these people who are pictured in this passage, they have yet to be resurrected. And so we get this an idea of what the current heaven is like and what it's like for those who currently go to heaven. Revelation chapter 6. Let me read the text and then we'll dissect a few things out of it. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of them that were slain for 
for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And so here's what we've got, a little bit of details. And I'm just going to dissect and make just several statements quickly that give you information. Number one, those who are in the spirit realm in heaven, they are still alive and awake. They're alive and awake in the spirit form. Bodies are dead, but the spirit is alive and awake. Now, there's a doctrine that's going around by different churches that talk about soul sleep. I referenced it quickly this morning. Soul sleep has the idea that when you die, your soul goes into you, with your body into the casket, and it remains there, sound asleep, and when your body is resurrected, then your soul is wakened. And so your, bo- your body and soul both remain together until the resurrection. And so you're dormant. Those people who have died, our loved ones, the people that we've had that we know through this COVID season who have passed away, the idea is that their, their spirit is just in a comatose status. The reason that they say this, and um, by the way, the major proponents of this right now in our region that promote it would be the JW Seventh-day Adventists. The reason that they promote it is they look at passages that talk about death and use the word sleeping or asleep. There are several texts that do that. There's texts like this. Our friend Lazarus, when Lazarus was sick and the disciples were concerned, Jesus said he is sleeping, and then a couple verses later said he is dead. There's a passage where it talks about we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. It's a resurrection passage. Okay? And there's this passage that talks about when we're going to be taken from the earth. Okay, that rapture passage. We shall not prevent them which are asleep dead in Christ, referring to the people who have died before us. So you have this idea that some have picked up on and they have developed and said, okay, what happens is that people who die, saints, they just, they're dormant. They're comatose. Now you and I would say that's not biblically true. Okay? The reason being is number one, our culture uses sleeping as a euphemism. And we take the Bible literally where Jesus used certain things like, I am the door. He didn't mean he was a literal door. He meant he was an entryway. Sleep is used as a phrase that we talk about sometimes. Somebody has passed. They're sleeping in the, in the cask or whatever. And it may sound morbid, but it's a, it's a term that's used, has been in, uh, in centuries used to describe sleep. And so understanding it's a euphemism, it's, a, it's just a form. Jesus frequently referred to those who had dead as still functioning, not dormant, but they are experiencing, even in the soul, even in the spirit, that <clears throat> in, that, in that phase without a body, that they were still having sensation. They were having um, consciousness. We read about that like the story that we referred to, Luke 16. Abraham, though his body is yet to be resurrected, his spirit was functioning. He was talking to the rich man. He was talking to Lazarus. Lazarus was enjoying, communicating. The rich man, though his, his body had died, his spirit was having full sensation. His spirit was not sleeping. His spirit was in torments in hell. And so that idea that Jesus made it very clear, the spirit is having full sensation, full experience. When Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. 
He's not talking about the body. He was talking about the spirit, the soul. He wasn't talking about in the resurrection. Jesus isn't saying in the future. He said when? Today. Okay? And so Jesus is making it clear. You aren't going to be dormant. You're going to have fellowship today with me and you're going to appreciate and you're going to have that sensation of real communion with somebody else with me in paradise. We have that same idea mentioned by Paul. When Paul said, you know, the absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If the soul is, isn't with the body anymore, they've separated, they died, this body and the soul are separated, then your spirit goes to be with the Lord. It's not dormant. It's going to understand social activity with Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain because I have a desire to depart from this body to be with Christ which is far better but to abide he says in the flesh. Well right now it's more needful because God says I need to stay here for a while. And so you have all these other passages that contradict this idea. Revelation 6 is your strongest. Revelation 6, the people have just been martyred. They have not yet been resurrected. That won't happen until later on in the book of Revelation. They are saying, they are speaking, they are talking. Their souls are under the altar, not lying dormant somewhere. They're functioning. So we look at this and say they're alive, they're totally alert. They're number two, they're human. What I mean by that is this, is there's that, uh, that doctrines, that teaching, that what happens when people die, all of a sudden they become something different than what they were. No. When we die, we still retain our humanity. We are souls, but we are, we are human souls. We don't become angels. We don't become something else. We remain as human spirits. Not only do we remain as human spirits, but we retain that idea of of human proportions in the spiritual realm. When um, Lazarus and the story of the rich man, when the rich man's in hell, the rich man is in a spirit status, but he has fingers, he has a tongue, he has eyes, he has ears, he has everything that your body is, is like now, even in the soul or that spirit realm, he has that. His spirit maintains humanity, a human likeness that has the features, the functions, just like yours. His soul spirit can feel the environment about him. He's in torments. He's thirsting. To have Lazarus come and dip his finger into water to cool my, just a dip of water to cool my tongue. In the spiritual realm, water would be a benefit to even help out because the soul senses the way your body senses. And so all this information helps us to understand that even there's clothing in this involved. These folk are given white robes that would fit the body. He uses that stole, that idea that's very common clothing, that toga-like clothing that would fit the human anatomy. So they're still human. Okay, they're still alive. They're alert. They're awake. Number three, what we find is they have human qualities and abilities that, that distinguish humans. They can rationalize. Here in this passage, they're asking questions. They're communicating. They have emotions like we have emotions now. They're crying out loud. By the way, the, the Greek word that talks about they cried with a loud voice, it's the idea of great emotional crying, something that is motivating them, that's stirring them up. That they cry out loud, How long, O Lord? And so they're making it very clear that the individuals in the spiritual realm, that they aren't robotic, they aren't just 
duds. They have full sensation, full emotion, and they even have the other qualities of being able to communicate to rationale to process. Number four, we retain our individuality and our identity. These individuals, as it talks about, every, the souls of them that were slain, robes were given to every one of them. They didn't become a part of a collective whole where all of a sudden they were a part of this greater energy and they kind of lost themselves and became part of this great mystical spiritual ball of light. That's not the case. We will retain our individuality. You will still be you when you die. You will maintain your individuality and you will maintain your identity. You will be recognizable in the spirit form. How do we know that? When Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus, next to Jesus Christ on the transfiguration, they were, they were identified as Moses and Elijah. When the rich man is in hell, he identifies Abraham. He identifies Lazarus. They kept their unique individuality even in the spiritual realm. Your loved ones who are in heaven, they are your loved ones. They are that individual in the spiritual realm, in a spiritual form. But if you saw them, you would recognize them. You would know them. They will know you because when you get into heaven, you will be you and it will be a recognizable you. Something else that stands out. We mentioned this already, that there's communication happening. In the normal sense of communication, we're going to be speaking. There's, this, there's not an idea in scriptures that we become telepathic creatures. Okay, we're still going to be communicating with the abilities that God has given us, having verbalization, and we're going to not only communicate with one another, we're going to be communicating as well with God Almighty, talking to God, God responding to us, that idea of well, working together, all of us might be speaking, saying the same things, so we're going to have speech. We're going to be able to speak to one another. Again, Lazarus, rich man, there's communication and ability to do that. Number six, we will fully recognize God for who He is. Fine. We know about God right now. We know Him as Savior. When we get to heaven, okay, they call out and they say, O oh Lord, holy and true. The word that they use for Lord is, is a word that is very clear in the original. They call Him O oh Despot, Tes. And you obviously know the English word we get from it. In the Greek, despotes has the idea of the one who is totally, absolutely the only one in charge. It is very clear. You are the absolute almighty one right here. And so it's a title of not only respect, it is a title of authority, a title of position, a title of actually God is absolutely, totally in control. When we're in heaven, we're going to understand that even more clearly than what we do right now. And so they call out, O Holy One, they know in heaven who's in charge. They know who's in charge of not only heaven, but who's in charge of what's going on in the world. Because in the conversation, they're saying, Lord, God, despot, one who's totally in control, how long until what's happening on planet earth? How long until those who killed us will, how long until you're going to take and, and settle things with them? put everything right. And so they know God is in charge of heaven. God is in charge of earth. Doesn't it remind you of the of prayer of the Our Father? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in Okay, God's will is perfectly done. People in heaven understand this. The reason I'm bringing it up
that they have completely submissive spirits is there are some religious groups that say this, that when we die, all of a sudden, we become gods in our own right. Have you ever heard this? Okay, groups that talk about that when we get to heaven, we're going to evolve into you know, some type of higher spiritual being who will all of a sudden someday maybe get his own little world. That's not what scriptures teach at all. Not at all. That in the spiritual realm when we get to heaven, we remain a part of God's domain. We don't become some divine being in and of our own selves. We will be us. God will be God. And we will recognize his authority and his authority will be retained throughout eternity. We don't become mini-gods in heaven. Number seven, we still pray to God. Okay, Even in heaven there's prayer going on. Asking God out of concern and out of a desire, knowing what might be happening here on earth. There's purity in heaven. The reason we know that, the white robe, and this is a, this is a unique word that's used in Scripture. The white robe is, a, is the idea of stole. It is that long flowing robe. It shows up in the book of Revelation seven time, uh, several times. Wherever it shows up, it has the idea of displaying uh, a pure righteousness, a picture of holiness, the idea that that you aren't stained with sin anymore. This is the opposite of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, in describing our sins, talks about all of our good deeds, all of our intentional righteousness being as what type of rags? Filthy rags, okay? Uh, Dung-stained rags. The idea of that, that our, our spiritual um, appearance is, is kind of portrayed. We're wearing it on our sleeves, Okay, and God sees us as dirty, sinful. Even the things we try to do in, in our own pride to say, I'm going to work my way into heaven. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to do what I can do to get myself into heaven. That, that's offensive to God because it's saying, I don't need you, God. I can do it on my own. And that stains us. That blemishes us. That blemishes our, our appearance before God. And he sees that. He sees that when we are lying or deceitful, that that stains when we have disobeyed parents, when we have committed any type of sin in action or in our mind. And so all of our righteousness that we think is so good, to God it says filthy rags, and there needs to be a cleansing in order to be, be having access to heaven. There needs to be a, a forgiveness, a washing. Well, the only detergent that can wash away that spiritual stain is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only one. It's not baptism, it's not a church affiliation or association, it's not joining this church or any church like it. It's only through Jesus Christ. He alone can cleanse you and give you the garments that are already uh, made up of His righteousness and clothe you in His righteousness so that when the Father looks at you, He no longer sees your sinful activity, my sinful activity, but He sees the righteousness of Jesus covering us. And that is the idea of the stole, that we get that pure righteousness, that holiness that we don't deserve, but we get it from Jesus Christ. And so in heaven we will appear, we will all of a sudden act like we will become more pure than ever before in our lives. Thought, deeds, actions, words. Number nine, there is still strong emotions in heaven. There is feelings in heaven. There are the emotions that are given in this text, and I mentioned it already Okay, this morning, that the overriding emotion in heaven is joy, rejoicing. 
we looked at passages, Revelation 5, Revelation 9, where we are in heaven pictured as part of those 24 groups of people and we are going to be singing songs. Thank you for redeeming us by your blood from every tribe, kindred, tongue and making us kings and princes. Revelation chapter 5. And then there's that, that rejoicing that right before Jesus comes back to this earth, we are going to say, yes, finally, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's time that you're coming down to this earth to settle everything and to set up your kingdom. And so we have the strong emotion in heaven of rejoicing, thanksgiving, being grateful for what he's done. There is also in this text another emotion. And it talks about, and I mentioned already, the word that's used in this text has a very emotional content. They cried. Now here's what, when they're crying, how much longer, O oh Lord? There is, there is debate on what is the emotion. Some say they're angry. They're angry that they have been martyred, and they want those people who killed them, they want them to get what they deserve. Some say, well, there's an impatience with God. How long, O oh Lord? Come on, let's get this rolling. Let's, let's stop. There's some saying that it's frustration. I don't know what term to use, but I think I understand the emotional aspect as not being revenge and vengeful. Oh, God, please, God, move. Let them have it. That spirit of revenge doesn't fit the idea of purity in heaven. How do I know that? Because Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, we are warned that vengeance is not ours. That is something that God will take care of. Instead of having a vengeful spirit, we are supposed to heap what upon the heads of those who have hurt us? Coals of fire. We're to do goodness to them. Okay? And so I can't imagine that these people in heaven who know what God is all about better than we do, who have a purity, they they've, don't have their flesh, their, their sin nature still corrupting their minds and their hearts, that they want vengeance with anger. But I do think that what they're asking is this. They want justice to be done. They want righteous justice. They have an idea of great concern. Concern over people who are left behind. They know what's going on in earth at this moment. They know that the evil that is running rampant in the first part of the tribulation is still not been stopped. And if you were in heaven and you knew what was going on in the tribulation, wouldn't you have a concern for the people left there that they would not suffer more persecution at the hands of Antichrist? And so there's a concern here of God. Let's, let's, let's instill. There's, there's a, there is a sense of, please, Lord, please, let, let's get the kingdom going. I mean, f- let's be honest. Do you ever get anxious for the rapture? That you say, hey, you know, please, Lord, can you come? I've got a test coming on Monday. Please, can you come Sunday? Okay, um, and we get anxious, and, and they have an anxiousness because if they have loved ones still on this earth, what would they rather have their loved ones experience? Torture, devastation, death of their tribulation, or the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God. And so these people have an emotion. It's a strong emotion. And uh, it fits that, that all of a sudden when in the time that Revelation 19 we read this morning, when Jesus is about to leave heaven, we start calling out, hallelujah, 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 as if with a sense of it's about 
time. Let's get into the next phase. Let's stop the chaos. Let's stop what's going on on planet earth. And quite frankly, we all know that Jesus said, unless he shortened the day, what would happen to the world? Human, no flesh would survive. And so those in heaven have that same burden he has, not for destruction, but for salvation. So Lord, please, please. But there's an emotion. In heaven, we still have emotion. Now, for some of us, we say, that's okay. For some, we go, I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe emotions get a little bit too... I have a a daughter, one of my daughters, who um, we always tease that she was the more emotional child. She was one of those children that all of a sudden I could be talking to her, and she could just start crying, and I'd say, how come you're crying? And she would say, I don't know. It was just emotions. Now, she has three girls. And last week I get this text. I know what you said. I was always emotional. But dad, you have no idea what these three girls are like. It's pure emotion all the time. And she was, she was texting. She tried to get me to FaceTime to talk to one of the granddaughters to try to calm her down. And so the granddaughter is crying in the backseat, just sobbing. And it's like, oh, it's like, honey, what's wrong? I don't know. Why are you crying? I don't know. Are you happy? I don't know. Are you sad? I don't know. I'm just crying. And so every time I'm just turning the thing away so I could giggle and then turn back. In heaven, I think we're going to have better control of emotions. So I give by that hope. The rich man in hell, he was emotional. Do you remember when he ends up in hell? He becomes very emotionally concerned about what? His brother's his brothers, and he pleads, send somebody to them. And so, as one of you just mentioned earlier, he became an evangelist as soon as he ended up in hell. He was very concerned about missions, not to get himself out of hell, but to keep his family from coming there. And so there's that aspect of even those in hell have emotion. They have, in the spiritual uh, sense, they communicate. They experience their environment. Their, Their issue is they're hearing with their spiritual ears, they're hearing others around them, but it's not pleasant. It's just a horrible, horrible element. Then you have this. They're aware of what's going on here on earth to a degree, to a degree. But there is an awareness of what's going on earth. How do I know that? Because in this text, they're saying, how long, O Lord? They understand that the end of the tribulation has not yet happened. They understand that Antichrist is still running wild on planet earth. They understand Satan is, is having a heyday on earth during that seven years. They understand that. Okay? And then when we get to the point where, where it reveals more about, about us in heaven, right before he comes, we understand, okay, he's ready to come back to earth, and this is what he's going to do. So there's an understanding of what's going, here, going on at earth. But I want to explain something. Okay? Um, another text that I was thinking about more this afternoon that I, I want to mention at this point. Go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12... Um, he's talking, and he's talking about us meeting Jesus Christ and things of that sort. And there's a phrase that is used that some have pressed into an explanation of what heaven is like. It says in the beginning of Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing we, are all, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us keep on running with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto the 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a phrase in there that some have developed this thought about what's happening in heaven. And it's based on that first part of verse 1, where it says, We are surrounded and compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Some have said that what this is, is this is explaining what's happening in the spiritual realm right now. We are in the playing field, and all the saints in heaven are in the stadium round about. That's how we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses. And they're watching what we are doing. And they're seeing how we are responding to difficulties, trials, how we're living for the Lord. And based on that, compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, some have then pressed into this idea that your parent, your loved one, your grandparents, they're watching you. They're seeing what you're doing. Your, your uh, uh, spouse, your children, that they're, they're able to see what you're doing day by day. I think you're really stretching that text, personally. I don't think that's what it, this passage is referring to at all. I think what this passage is, chapter 12, this sounds dumb, I know. Chapter 12 follows chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about the saints who have gone on before us. It's the hall of faith, giving us all these people who have been so faithful in the middle of difficulties. And then we come to chapter 12 and it says, having this example of so great a cloud of marturon, literal word, those who are testifying to us. I don't think the people in heaven that he's talking about in this passage are individuals who have gone on before us and now they are enamored with us. I think that he's talking about people who have gone on before us and they don't witness us, they witness to us by the example they've left behind. That they are testifying of God's greatness and how God helped them, carried them through, and instead of them watching us and to see how we're doing, they would be in heaven giving praises to God, worshiping Him, and their concern for us is just be faithful, just be faithful. And the witness isn't them watching us. The witness is their example that they've set before us. It's like going into a, um, going into a, a sports activity. That's the scene here. Going into a sports activity and for sometimes some, some schools to give motivation, they put a picture of previous athletes or they put some trophy there. In the, you know, along the hallway before the athletes enter and they look at what went before them and that's to give inspiration, to get them fired up. They aren't the people who are in the stadium. They're rather the people who have given example and given encouragement. I think you're hard-pressed to say people in heaven are watching you 24-7. Okay? I, 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 I struggle with that because I am not supposed to be serving for the applause of men, but I, there's only one person that I know who's omniscient who's able to see everything I do. And that one person is God, Jesus Christ, who He is the one who's going to be judging me. He is the one who's going to be rewarding me. And that I don't think my mom's sitting in heaven and listening to every sermon I preach. I just don't. And watching me 24-7. I think that's a stretch of this text. But is there an awareness? There is some awareness to a degree. And the reason I say it to a degree, they're not God. In heaven, they aren't all-knowing, ever-present. Ever 
they are limited by time and space, which leads us to other thoughts. They are not able to intervene in human affairs as they wish or they think. They're in heaven saying, Lord, we, we wish things would change. We wish Antichrist would be chained already. They can't do anything about it. It's, it's, it's beyond their ability, their realm. They don't have that. Where some of you have heard and some of you have seen portrayed by Hollywood that spirits come and they help us do our thing. That spirits have innate ability and concern and they uh, get involved in our lives day in and day out. People give these kinds of things. Oh, my uncle so-and-so who passed away, he helped me get my driver's license. I don't think so. Actually, I should say it different. I know that's not true. In Scripture, those spirits who go to heaven, they are in heaven. They are not here on earth getting involved in our affairs. They have limited knowledge. They have limited, very limited, if any, to be involved in our human affairs day by day. That is something the Spirit can do. That is something God does. That is something that He has His angels do. They are the ministering spirits, the angels, not our deceased relatives. Does that change the way that most people look at this? Yeah, because a lot of people talk about their relatives helping them out. Number 12, they're still learning. In heaven, we're still learning. They're asking questions in heaven. How long, Lord? They don't have full knowledge. They're, they're not omnipotent uh, or omniscient beings, which again goes contrary to what some teach, people teach about heaven, that we don't evolve into a divine being with divine knowledge. Even in heaven, our knowledge is limited. We do not become God. We do not know everything God knows. He is still God. We are still creation. Number 13, okay, they experience comfort and bliss. We don't need to talk about that a whole lot more. We've mentioned that already, that those like Lazarus, they're comforted. These people are told to rest. They experience time and space like we do. That goes into that idea of not being omnipresent, not knowing everything, not being totally aware. God can do that because God is omnipresent. God can keep a track on me. He can keep a track on you. He can keep a track on them and them and them and them and them all at the same time. That's God's ability unique to God. But these people, they're even limited. The, the people in hell. They can't even escape from hell. They can't get out of it for a little bit to do something good like warning other people. The rich man couldn't get out. So they don't have the ability to all of a sudden manifest themselves at any place at any moment. They're limited by time and space. They live within seasons. They live within years. They live within the idea of what God has set up. There is only one being who lives outside of time and space. It's God, and God chooses to live within time and space as well. But the rest of us, we are part of creation. We will forever be living within the idea of space and time, even though the time will just go on uh, perpetually. Number 15, experience strong ties with others. They're, they're as a group, they're calling out. We as a group sing out in Revelation 5. We as a group sing in Revelation 11. There's going to be the idea of your brethren here on earth. There's still a close tie. So there's ties with others. Number 16, they remember their past lives on earth. These individuals who are in heaven, they remember what they experienced. They remember that they've been martyred. They remembered how, what, they, what they probably, how they were martyred, how they stood for Jesus Christ. So even their bad experiences are not erased. 
Those in heaven can recall how long, O oh Lord, between, before you're going to take and settle the score, settle the account for what happened to us. And so we remember that. When you get to heaven, when your loved ones get to heaven, we still have remembrance of what was life here on earth. We still have our individual memories, our individual life. The man who was in hell, he remembered his family. He remembered his luxury. He remembered, and so did Lazarus, his po- Lazarus's poverty. So we aren't going to forget everything. Maybe, just maybe, I don't know about this. But eventually, even beyond the kingdom, when there's the new heaven and the new earth, that God will wipe away all tears once and for all, does he then deal with memories and some of those? That, that's, the only sense, that's the only possibility that, that I understand that could be wiping away the tears is there's an alteration of memories at that moment when we go into eternity. But during this time, at this moment, those in heaven, they remember you. They remember their lifetimes. They remember relationships that may be altered in heaven, but we still remember who our family was. And we'll recognize those people when we get there. Um, in fact, in Revelation 5, this is the text we read this morning. Do you remember what we remember, the song? We remembered we were redeemed. We will remember we were redeemed from every tribe, kindred, nation, tongue. And so we remember those things for our past life. Let's go on to a couple more here. Or if this, is, this is the last one. We will enjoy God's focus and God's favor. Okay? How do I know that? Because in this passage, he's saying, here, I have something for you. Rest yet for a season. Rest yet for a season. I'm going to give you that which is going to be comforting, satisfying that we talked about this morning. So God knows their needs. God knows their emotional needs. He knows the stress they are under. And he says, okay, let's calm down. Let's just trust me. I'm the despot. I'm in sovereign control. And so here at this moment, and it's amazing how God takes the time to converse with them. And there's that communication and that help that's provided. It reminds me of what God does for the saints in general in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 2, he talks about what he's done for the saints. And it says in Revelation chapter 2, predicting what's future, I will give them manna to eat. Manna is heavenly food. Manna is um, is, is not just the sustenance, but there are certain foods that are more than sustenance. One of those that I think about is this. Um, uh, what do you call it? When, uh, the term for you know, crabs and then working through, is there a special term for that? You ever sit down with people after you've stewed the clams, uh, the crabs? Yeah, shelling them. And, and then what do you get those little picks? And you sit there and you try to get those little itsy-bitsy pieces of meat. Okay? And you're trying to break open the, the, you know, the crab and I look at that, and I've done it just a couple times, and to me, number one, I don't want to work that hard for my food. Okay. If I can order at, at Wendy's or Burger King, far better than What is the experience about doing the crabbing and eating them? Social. It's all about socializing. It's that meal where you're going to really socialize. Because to sit there all by yourself, okay, it's almost... It's almost Afflicting pain upon me. Okay, to be by me. This idea of the manna is that same idea. There's going to be fellowship with Christ. That, that idea, he says, I give unto them a white stone. I don't know exactly what it means, but I can tell you the possibilities. That in the Bible days, white stones were a part of that, that priestly garment 
that they would determine the will of God and they would have the stones inside the vest and he would pull out the stone and get direction. It was also that which was given in the New Testament era. Athletes at times were given those laurel wreaths like to give the Olympics. Those crowns that we talk about, the crowns that we would get, the Stephanoi. Okay. But they were also given white stones, white gems as a sign of honor. If you had one of those, that could go on your trophy uh, or on your, your fireplace as your trophy. The white stone was also used at times to determine innocent or guilty. Well, the white stone would indicate you're innocent. Well, that would be a great thing to have that God looks at me and God says, and I pull out my stone, I'm innocent. I'm no longer guilty, in other words. And so that, that suggestion here that God's favored us with manna, God's favored us with a white stone, God favors us with a new name. What's the new name? What's the possibilities here? It could mean like Jacob, you're going to become Israel. Simon, you're going to become Peter. You'll reach a better, bigger potential. The new name my wife got a new name. I don't know if it was to her benefit, but she got a new name when she married me to indicate status that we're husband and wife. Um, there's that idea of intimacy with a pet name. Maybe some have said, I have pet names that I use for my kids that it's not shared publicly, and it was a name that sometimes we'll still use, okay? It is a, a special name of endearment. So God gives us those things, enjoying his favor, his personal care. Listen, that's what's happening in heaven, but it happens right now. For those of us who are born again, right now we experience the care of God. He's helping you. He's given you that, that, that ability to have a close relationship with him. He's given you the opportunity to get a stone that says you're forgiven. You're no longer to be held guilty. He hears you. He provides peace for you. God is the God who cares for us right now as he will in heaven. And what a wonderful God. That not only do we have to wait until we get to heaven, which is fabulous, but our God cares for us right now. Our God loves us right now. If we're believers, if we're followers of him, he says that one day he'll come and receive us to himself and there we'll be with him. And when we are with him, we are no longer caged by sin. We will reach our fullest potential that God intended for us in heaven. We won't miss a beat. We won't, we won't look back and say, oh man, uh, I, I didn't really want to go to heaven because I missed something on earth that was so much better. Uh-uh. Everything in heaven is going to be better. The question is, are you going to have that freedom in heaven or are you going to be bound and end up in hell? It all depends what you do with Jesus. If you want to talk, we'll talk afterwards. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for giving us a little bit of an idea of what we're going to be like and what heaven is like so as to give us assurance and incentive. Help us to use it this week for your glory, we pray in your name. Amen.